episode of the views from down under a uh, very happy lunar new year of the dragon to all our listeners out there uh today uh i'm joined on the panel uh by orson tan and neil van vary i'm alex tan your host for the show a uh, couple of things that we want to talk about today uh a lot of interesting to- uh, topics and news that are coming out uh, the first one that we will talk about is the joint statement on Australia-New Zealand Ministerial Consultations 2024, where the foreign ministers and defense ministers of Australia and New Zealand met up uh, on the 1st of February. And mm-hmm. we'll talk a little bit also about the New Zealand coalition situation mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. bring a little bit of theory into mm. it. And then we'll end up with a relatively lighthearted story, a couple of lighthearted story, uh, one on Indonesia's upcoming presidential election, where in... Uh, Cartoon characters are appearing in the campaigns, uh, which is really interesting. <laughs> and then um, this news that is picked up in Associated Press and published quite a lot mm. on India detaining a suspected spy pigeon. Uh, and lastly, we'll talk about the uh, Republican primaries. The Republican yeah. primary in Nevada, where yep. in uh, Nikki Haley lost to none of the above. Yep. Uh, so what gives? And uh, anyway, uh, so we'll start the uh, show. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the the very interesting uh, joint statement on Australia-New Zealand ministerial consultations. This is the first one mm. uh, that they did this, uh, what they're now calling ANZ-MIN uh, 2 plus 2. Mm. So two foreign ministers and two defense, defense ministers. ministers. Yep. Uh, and there are quite a lot of statements and points that they raise, uh, of course, with the usual one, but there are 45 points uh, that they raise, and including issues on Indo-Pacific, mm. the Pacific itself, New Zealand's posture uh, with regards to Australia-New Zealand relation and alliance particularly. Mm. Um, and I thought it was really many, many interesting points that is being raised. The uh, What I picked up on is that this is, in my view, the first statements that are coming out officially mm-hmm. uh, from the New Zealand side that is very clear mm. on how it views many of these minilateral mm. arrangements yep. uh, in the region. Of course, the affirmation of the importance of Australia in uh, Australia-New Zealand alliance, spe- especially for New Zealand, mm. yep. especially for New Zealand. So there's a lot of confirmation on that. And um, I note that uh, several statements that they have brought up, in particular, uh, how they view AUKUS, mm. uh, for example, uh, point number eight, wherein the ministers discussed the AUKUS trilateral and agreed, mm. agreed, the ministers agreed it made a positive contribution towards maintaining peace, security, prosperity, in the Indo-Pacific. Mm. I'm not sure that the prior government of New Zealand has been so explicit in <coughs> stating mm-hmm. that. Uh, do you guys recall if they have? Not quite so clearly. Not not, not in black and white uh, in the way that it is in, in the current statement. I think that's certainly a break from the Labour government that we just recently had up until last year. In, yeah. in, in terms of how clearly it perceives AUKUS as a, posit- as a positive net contributor to security in the region. 
but it's kind of been implied, right? In the in the under the previous Labour government, when they when was it Andrew Little released that whole new defense statement, and they talked about how New Zealand was looking to build up its defense and 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 look to its allies in the region to deepen its relationships, and then we had the news leading up to the election about New Zealand looking into Pillar Two of AUKUS that started under Hipkins government. Yeah, and, I think and when and when the news came out about him talking about Pillar Two, he had to defend why they were looking at it as well, and he kind of implied that you know they they see a lot of value in AUKUS. That is more towards the Hipkins, yeah, uh, uh, Labour government yeah. already, right? So we'd say about twenty twenty two, yeah, uh, last year. Uh, no, sorry, twenty twenty three. Yeah, twenty Well, the trouble with the Hipkins, the Hipkins government also was that on one end you had Andrew Little making these statements, and then. A few days later, you had the then foreign minister, Nanai Mahuta, coming out and saying, no, that's not quite the case. So I suspect as a government itself, the ambiguity was relevant and present in that cabinet by and off itself. If you've, if you've got the foreign minister singing from a different hymn book than the defense minister, then the message is going to muddy the water. That seems to have changed with Winston Peters and, and Judith Collins. Uh, going over to Australia and releasing a statement of the sort. Yeah, I think in in this particular coalition government, in the national-led coalition mm. government of uh, Christopher Luxon, it seems like the position is clearer, mm. uh, much more clear and much more united. Right? Yeah. Uh, uh, well, it says here in point number eight, ministers acknowledge Australia's commitment to responsible nuclear stewardship. Yeah. Uh, and the highest non-proliferation standard in relation to its acquisition of conventionally armed nuclear-powered submarines under AUKUS. Hmm. You know, I think uh, the prior <laughs> government has not been as yeah. forthcoming Come, yep. with these type of yeah. statements, yeah. right? With Especially with these type of statements. So I find it really, mm. really quite uh, interesting to see how New Zealand has come along uh, in that regard. Yeah. Uh, then point number nine, ministers also welcomed the Quad's commitment to an open, stable, and prosperous Indo-Pacific region and its positive practical agenda to support the Indo-Pacific countries' priorities and needs. I think, again, this particular government has much been is definitely more explicit. Yes, uh, in support of this minilateral, uh, minilaterals that have been forming. Uh, mm. Since 2017, right? Yeah. And certainly much more active yep. since 2017. Uh, but this is an interesting positioning of this particular national-led coalition government um, compared to um, the prior government. Mm. Um, but I think it's probably also an acknowledgement that uh, the world is just getting tougher. Uh, yeah. The fact that um, you know the strategic competition between the United States and China has become much more intense. Mm. And this is a time for a country like New Zealand, small, uh, small country like New Zealand that has vested interest in the stability of the multilateral uh, system mm. uh, and the international uh, rules-based uh, world order yeah. that it needs to do some statement, mm. right? Uh, some statement about what it should be doing. In fact, uh, in addition to this, uh, you know, New Zealand has also participated in mm. the, uh, you know, the situation in the Red Sea right yeah. now, right? Uh, so they've contributed to that as well. And that is also part of that commitment to our view of the, in, you know, uh, rules-based international yep. order, mm. right? So what do you guys uh, think of, uh, you know, how far along has New Zealand come 
come on this is uh, this uh, something that you, sh- you you would have expected them to say already anyway I'm I'm not surprised because I think the real turning point for us was the defense policy strategy statement and the national security state strategy. Yeah, mm. that, that, that's, when, right. When, that's right. When Andrew Little released that, was it August last year? Yes. And 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 we had the big hoo ha in the media where the former Prime Minister Helen Clark came out and you know criticized it and all that. That was that was the real shifting point mm. that showed that New Zealand as a state. You know, as a country, had recognized the f- the fact that you know the tides are changing, the the environment that the security environment that we operate in is changing, and we are no longer capable of being ostriches with our head in the sand, imagining that the whole world will you know everything mm. will pass us by. Mm. So this is this then is you know this new ministerial statement coming out with Judith Collins and Winston Peters at, over in Melbourne. It's just a natural extension from that because yeah. you know the defense establishment up in Wellington has have already recognized that there needs to be a change. Yeah, we need to do something about it. Mm. And I don't know how Nicola Willis wants defense to find what seven percent of seven point five seven point five budget cuts when they've already promised to spend. Mm. Yeah, I think for NZDF and for defense. Uh, <laughs> All the agencies were being yeah. asked between six point five to seven point five. Yeah. That's quite a lot in yeah. a time where in mm. commitments are being asked. Mm. Uh, if we're signing up to this, mm. then it means to say that uh, we need to keep up uh, on the other side. Of yeah, it. There, there'll be cost. There'll be cost to this. Be- because just after the news broke that that D- MOD and NZDF will be included in this, the whole budget cut for under Nicola Willis. Luxon came out and said, no, he's still committed to raising our defense spending to 2% of GDP. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, where do you where do you get it? Yeah. Well, where how do you, you how do you square the circle? I think that certainly the context in which the Indo-Pacific currently functions was very explicit in the statement. And that goes mm-hmm. back to what uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade was saying in its foreign policy assessment document last year, which is the fact that the Pacific is no longer strategically benign. Yeah. We're not living in the 1990s, where the former Prime Minister Helen Clark said, we live in a benign security environment. You know, that statement that was released last year flipped that rationale on its head. And you can see that, the the, the constant emphasis in the statement, the fact that it's becoming a contested world, it's becoming a more unpredictable geopolitical and geostrategic environment in the Indo-Pacific. What also struck me was how broad-ranging the statement was. You know, we've gone, they've, they've, they've mentioned the Quad, they've mentioned Five Eyes, they've reiterated the importance of the Five Eyes, they were, they, they, they've, they've mentioned the East China Sea, the South China Sea. Judith Collins has placed a lot of emphasis on the defense element in the statement. Um, I believe in, in the press conference afterwards, she did use the word freeload and the fact that New Zealand should not freeload. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was talking about things like an ANZAC model w- where... Um, compatibility, compatibilities between the NZDF and the Australian Def- Defence Force will be complementary. Mm-hmm. You now have news of a delegation of um, Australian officials coming to coming to New Zealand to brief our officials here on Pillar Two of AUKUS. Um, so the defence element was 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 certainly front and centre, but the unanswered question, of course, is how do you square that circle? If you're signing up to a broad statement, which is 45 points, covering everything from many laterals to issues around the South China Sea to issues around maintaining non-proliferation in the Pacific and preventing the Pacific from becoming another theatre of strategic competition between the US and China, what actions are you going to be 
presenting to, to complement the words which you've just said. I think that's something that not only the Australians but partners and allies across the region are going to look at now. I mean, that's what that's what Judith Collins or Kasha was talking about when she said, you know, we have been invited to the barbecue, but we've got to bring something to the table, right? Yes, yes, indeed. You know, that's for sure. And I think yes. I agree with that. I agree with uh, uh, Minister Collins' statement on that. Uh, this for we've been talking about you know uh, this for a long time already. Mm. Uh, our colleagues have also expressed uh, where are our positions on this, mm. right? And what we should be doing as a member, or as a responsible member of the international community, and certainly in this region, a member of the Indo-Pacific region. And it's a challenge for us, and we've always said that uh, we should be joining. But what do we bring to the table? Yeah. Yep. Uh, our yeah. questions have always been: we've never, we've never doubted that New Zealand would be joining, yep. uh, holding up the rules-based international mm. order. We've always been for that. Yep. The question is: how then do we raise the money, and where do we actually start mm. uh, putting it? It doesn't mean to say that you need to put it blanket, yeah. yep. blanket-wise. Maybe there are strategic ident- identified. Uh, expenditures that we really definitely need to do. But uh, you guys have mentioned it. We definitely will be asked for a contribution. Mm. This is quite extensive. They, yeah. Even in point 26, they talk about ministers reaffirm the importance of peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. This is the first time I've heard yeah. uh, uh, talk about the Taiwan Strait. So quite broad ranging. It's really a confirmation of quad missions in a way. Mm. AUKUS missions. Uh, I I think it's also very domestic focused, right? From Winston, from from this national led coalition government. This is a statement that is is speaking to the New Zealand public, telling them at the end of the day, you need to remember whose side we are on. Yeah. Mm. This yeah. is this is is it's as clear as you're gonna say that we are in five eyes. You know, we are five eyes partner. We've we've got uh the Australia New Zealand Alliance, those are things that are our bottom line. We can't we can't back away from it. Yeah. And mm. therefore, you know, no, no matter what put up something. Yeah. No yes. matter no matter yes. what Helen Clark wants to talk about, or you know, Mahuta wants to bring up the whole independent foreign policy, that has to be shelved and you need to re- recognize the reality is we we are we we are facing a choice and we need to make that choice. And that's that's basically what they're saying. Yeah, in fact, it was uh, there was a piece that uh, uh, I remembered, uh, Neil. I think you shared with me. Mm. Uh, it was a it was an op-ed piece uh, mm. from South China Morning Post talking about you oh, know yes. well that my my New Zealand contributing to that uh, patrol of the Red ah. Seas uh, and that we sh- we are losing credibility within Asia Pacific and mm. and I beg to disagree with the writer of that mm. of that article. I think if we do not. Yes. Yep. Participate. Mm. We lose all credibility because yeah. we in New Zealand has always said we are for the maintenance of rules based ba- mm. international yep. order, a multilateral yep. rules based yeah. international order. And this is our little part mm. of saying that okay, you know, we're not gonna only talk the talk, but we will walk the walk yeah. as well. And this is so the question for us is it's not it's now that we have the the the, the foreign ministries and the foreign minister and the defense minister and the government is much more aligned in its thinking here now. The next step for the current government is to find the places wherein we can raise those money mm. to start walking the walk. Yeah. Right? And 
And the job then for the government is to educate the New Zealand public that mm. this is something that we that is part and parcel of being a member of the international community. Yeah, I mean we're doing what's best for us. Winston was asked at the news com- the press conference for this ministerial statement about what 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 he thinks about Xi Jinping and what Xi Jinping would think of New Zealand, you know, signing on to the statement. And he said, you know, I I very much appreciate. President Xi Jinping, because he's a man who pursues his national interests. Exactly what we are doing here in New Zealand. We are pursuing our natural in- national interests. I think if today you ask Lee, Prime Minister Lee Shen Long of Singapore, he'll say the same. You know, Singapore mm. will pursue its own national yeah. interests. Yeah. We, we, are in a, we are now in an environment where I wouldn't say it's every man for themselves, but every state needs to look out for its its own interests first and foremost. I mean, the real that's the reality, yeah. right? Mm. I mean, we we here in this uh, in this program, we are realists, neo realists, and structural mm. realists. You know, in, in this <laughs> sense, we do we do under you know theoretically speaking, you yes. know, the realist mm. perspective tells us that this is a self help system because yep. the world is quote unquote anarchic, yeah. right? So it's self help. If you do not help yourself or you know take care of your own. Who will, mm. right? So in in this case, uh, you know, this particular statement, like I said, uh, like we all said here, it's a continuation yep. yeah. of something that is starting to brew in the late 2022 mm. yep. and then carried over to 2023 and then release. Uh, we're in Minister Little uh, under the Hipkins government, yeah. uh, start bringing it up and you're starting to see that they're, they're educating the public now mm. in that slow shift towards these type of orientation yeah. uh, and now with uh, a much more right of center mm. coalition yeah. uh, you know that they're going to move even further yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and and push this uh, agenda altogether let me transition uh, to the next topic here about uh, the interesting about interesting thing about the coalition government within New Zealand and uh, you know uh, using the theory using yeah. the theories of coalition formation and w- that we know of there's been a lot of news about who's actually leading the government and, mm. and is the tail wagging the dog, you mm-hmm. know, kind of situation. Uh, Neil, why don't you tell us about what does coalition theory tell us? Well, we, we briefly touched on this when we did the podcast last year in the immediate aftermath of the New Zealand election. And the question for us then was what would the nature of the coalition be? Would it be a coalition between the National Party and the ACT Party? Or would the special votes shift the ground and bring in New Zealand first? So, in effect, would it be a two-party or a three-party government? Once the once the special votes were counted, um, New Zealand first was, in fact, required in the government formation mechanism. And, and we had a three-party government. Both parties happened to be in cabinet. There are, unlike previous arrangements where you had one party in cabinet, another party outside of cabinet, you had extensive coalition negotiations, and um, since the start of the new year, since uh, the political calendar has started ticking again, there has been on quite a few stories about who really is the Prime Minister. Is it Chris Luxon? Is it David Seymour? Is it Winston Peters? Uh, has Chris Luxon given too much away? Is Chris Luxon's job now just to fight the fires being lit by um, the two other party leaders that he happens to be in, in a coalition with? Yep. And we... Um, we, we, we've seen we've seen the we've seen these little events pop up that f- have brought questions about who's leading the party, right? Well, yeah, you think about the associate health minister was it Costello from New Zealand First pursuing a, advice on uh, freezing the tobacco tax 
despite Luxon saying that it's no longer, you know, it's not something that this government is pursuing, but she's she still asked yep. for it. Yep. And then just last week, we had Luxon come out and state that, you know, with X treaty principles bills, they are not going to support it past the select committee. And the very next day, uh, our good f- the very good David Seymour comes up and says, no, I think uh, Prime Minister Luxon is mistaken. He's going to feel the public pressure and he's ha- going to have to deal with it. Well, descri- describing the Prime Minister as nervous. <laughs> um, and, and, we, we, and, and, and if we look at the, the, the academic theory around coalition formation, and, and certainly uh, Giovanni Sardori wrote about this in the 1970s, the idea of blackmail potential and coalition potential. Yeah. And I think what we're seeing here is, is, is those concepts at work where the minor parties, on account of um, their strength in numbers in Parliament and the fact that the National Party needed both of them, have managed to exert a significant amount of blackmail potential. Mm-hmm. I would argue ACT has gone from exerting blackmail potential to coalition potential, where both parties are affecting uh, the party system and party competition, in a way making it a little more centrifugal than centripetal and if we just look at the 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 ministers and the number of ministerial positions given to these small parties the act party has six mp uh, has got six mps who have been given executive offices this includes mm-hmm. ministers outside of cabinet this includes under secretaries about 55 percent of their caucus has managed to get ministerial positions can you see them first five out of eight mps that 62 percent of its caucus is now in the executive branch national party 19 out of 40 years. So about less than 40% of its MPs are actually in, in, in government. Unfortunately for Christopher Luxon, this is not a John Key situation where the National Party under John Key was pretty much there. 55 seats, 56 seats. And John Key was able to conjure up an oversized coalition of numerous smaller parties to yep. tackle that blackmail potential, to make sure that none of, the, none of the other small parties that he was getting into government with could hold him hostage. I think Chris Luxon, in that regard, has inherited a very different set of issues. Yes, and and if you look at, just if you look at the the, uh, the distribution and mm. the number of seats that the John Key uh, mm. cabinets yeah. have, they are definitely more in the driver's seat. Definitely, yep. and definitely. and it is an oversized coalition mm. that they can play one small party against another, yeah. and the. Bi- Votes will not be risk because yes. if you lose one or two, they still have enough numbers to carry on for the yeah. majority. This time, this is different yeah. because if you look at the coalition from a coalition theory mm. side, they are minimum winning, winning. coalition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're minimum winning coalition in the sense that you take out one of the two minor parties, you yeah. don't have majority. Yeah. So each of them, the two smaller partners, the the the, jo- mm. the junior partners in in this coalition uh, knows actually they play a very very critical vote they deliver yeah. the critical vote for the majority yeah. and in those cases coalition te- theory always tells us these type of situation the junior coalition members actually often are overpaid yeah yep overpaid yeah. in the sense that in this case uh, the the statistics that you came up yeah. with is min- in ministerial positions, positions right? Absolutely. Ministerial or assistant ministerial positions. They are overpaid compared to the situation of the national party, yep. the larger party. Yep. This has actually happened also in uh, the Cameron 
government the in first time around, right? In 2010, yeah, yeah. When, when, when Britain had its first full coalition uh, under David Cameron and Nick, and Nick Clegg, you had a lot of Liberal Democrat ministers who end up, who end up being in, in, in cabinet and in government. It's a different story that in 2015, the law of coalition politics actually hit the Liberal Democrats quite hard in yeah. the sense that they <laughs> lost, they went from having 59 seats in the House of Commons to, I think, eight. You could fit all of them in two London taxis. Um, but because we've got MMP, a lot of, especially for with the Green Party in New Zealand, they, they seem to be doing okay, but other smaller parties sometimes do struggle. Yep. If we also look at the 2017 figures, Labour back then under under Jacinda Ardern was in more of a driving seat than the National Party today because the Labour caucus was still over 50% of its caucus were cabinet members. You know, New Zealand First was still not quite as dominant in terms of executive positions as it has under Chris Luxon. And mm -hmm. that's again a, a key defining feature between what we inherited in 2017, which was a three-party government with one party being outside of cabinet and the current situation we've got at the moment. Yeah, and, and, and that is the situation that... You, when using these type of theory, you can explain why, quote unquote, tail wagging the dog yeah. happens. Yeah. Because the larger party really needs the other two parties yep. in yeah. order to get their agenda passed. Let's move on to lighter subjects. And uh, I'm not sure if this is very light, but it's a very interesting topic. I This is uh, a BBC News about uh, the Indonesian presidential front runner, right? Front runner yep. candidate. Prabowo Subianto. Um, apparently, uh, cartoons and memes are <laughs> important in Indonesian uh, elections. Indonesia, the, the title goes Prabowo Subianto, Indonesia's cuddly grandpa with a bloody past. So, uh, Orson, what's this with uh, this new cuddly grandpa? Uh... Okay, the, the real interesting thing, be beyond the fact that, you know, they've basically decided to Disneyfy Prabowo and uh, Gibran in their campaign posters that are going up on billboards all around Indonesia, is the fact that all of this has been done using generative AI. It's the very first time where we've seen uh, actual political parties using, using gener generative AI in their campaigns. You know, we, we, we hear all these news about how generative AI is feeding misinformation, is, is you know, undermining elections and, and, and peddling political mis, uh, influence and all that. And here we have the political party leading in the polls in Indonesia, using it to reform their candidate's image. So the thing about Prabowo is he's an ex-Special Forces commando, commander. He's got this legacy and history of having blood on his hands through, through the, 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 the Sukarno-Suharto years. And it was seen that, or it was felt that his very stern image, his, this history of, of violence, of not being able to, to, to look compassionate had impacted him in his previous attempt at the presiden uh, presidential elections where he ran against Jokowi. So his campaign advisors had this brilliant idea that they needed to present a new image of Prabowo, something that's appealing to the younger Generation Z voters mm. who are who are gonna be you know who are gonna be casting their vote on mm. uh, the fourteenth, which is in three days. So was it mm, twelve thirty four Wednesday? Wednesday. So they're targeting this group of voters that actually have no 
memory of oh, the Suharto yep. years. Yep. Uh. So if they 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 cannot remember any of his uh, or even know it, or mm. even I mean they might have heard of it, but they don't they they don't explicitly draw that link between him and the Suharto years. Mm. So what they're trying to do now is because they don't have that baggage, they're trying to now make it make him look really friendly, really approachable. Mm. And so they've decided to use generative AI to create cartoon images of him and his running partner, Gibran, who is uh, Jokowi's son, in the style of uh, Disney Pixar art. So <laughs> now, uh, Prabowo, if you look at the posters going around in Indonesia, Prabowo looks like the little boy who, from that Disney an- uh, animation film, Up, you know, the one with the really chubby cheeks? Yes. Mm. Yeah, he looks like that. <laughs> it's really interesting too because uh, I in this news it says that uh, uh, one uh, research fellow was quoted as saying I rarely see Prabowo's real picture anymore. <laughs> instead, the inter uh, instead the internet drawing rooms and street streets are filled with posters of Prabowo as a chubby cartoon character. It's it's really interesting. It's, it's important to know that Prabowo uh, is not only special forces commander under. Uh, President Suharto, he's also the son-in-law of Suharto. Of Suharto, yes. yeah. and he was also instrumental in crushing the West Papua movement. Yeah, so he carries quite a lot of baggage. So this is quite an interesting way of mm. uh, uh, cleaning up the yeah. image, uh, as you say, Disneyfying. Yeah. Disneyfying. You know, mm. it, it's it's. Literally, we are we are at a new forefront of electoral politics, given the technology that's exploded in the past three years mm, in yeah. terms of generative AI yeah, right. and all of that. We really don't know what's gonna come and hit us next. You know, this is a nice light example of it, but what about deep fake? Yeah, you know, which what, which what happened to uh, in the US, right? Yeah, yes. with yeah. the deep fake uh, of Biden's voice, yeah. isn't it? It happened to Lee Hsien Long in Singapore. Someone Uh-oh. tried to deep, deep fake a video of him giving a speech. Oh, wow. So this is something to be worried about yeah. right? mm. going forward. Like This is kind of like lighthearted, yeah, but it's not lighthearted when you're thinking of they're using it to clean up yeah. someone's image. A dark past. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, a masterclass in rehabilitation in a way. Yeah, in a way. In uh, a way. Alistair Campbell needs to learn some uh, new tricks. <laughs> Well, he, he's well out of labor politics now, I think, <laughs> at least in the front lines. Speaking of this, when is again, when's the presidential election again? 14th, this oh, Wednesday. This month? This Wednesday, yeah. This Wednesday. Yeah. So uh, uh, for our listeners, uh, we will revisit that and mm. analyze that election after and the implications for Southeast Asian affairs, particularly and regional affairs. Given that Indonesia is a very large player, yeah. Uh, in Southeast Asian affairs. And has a lot of ambition to be the mm, main player. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And particular of note for us from views from Down Under is the fact that Australia and Indonesia shares a border. Yep. <laughs> you know, so yep. and as far as Australian politics is concerned, Indonesia plays an outsized role. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and so it would be very interesting to see um, who wins. Then what's the what's the future for yeah. uh, Indonesia in Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Australia relations, and mm. and what have you? Let me move on to uh, another topic uh, that happened uh, in the U.S. The Nevada primaries, okay, uh, wherein wherein Nikki Haley lost to none of the above. So how do you recover? 
from losing none of the above. When, when I first saw the thing, I was wondering, why did a candidate name themselves none of the above? <laughs> then I realized, it took, took me a while to realize that she actually did lose to none of the above. Yep. Yep. <laughs> the fact that all, you know, the, the, was it four or five of them who were on the ballot? Nikki Haley, and then who else was on the ballot for that primary? Uh, she was the only one, I think. No, there's somebody. There were a couple others as well. Oh, what? Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. Because she, she, she. The none of the above had like sixty-three percent. Yeah. And then the rest. The, she had about thirty-one. And yeah. Then and the rest under her were like uh, single digits. Single digits. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, how do you guys lose to none of the above? <laughs> like how how unappetizing a, a slate of candidates can you be that you know people would rather select? Yeah. Nobody. How, yeah. Well, the, my, my question then is, number one, how do you recover from that? Mm. And number two, you know, what does it mean with regards to Trump's hold on, the Republican, on the Republican Party? Well, it's a mortifying defeat. I mean, if you're, if you're literally losing out to none of the above, um, it's important to distinguish that it's more symbolic than meaningful in a way because there were no delegates attached to the primary because yep. of the split between what the Republican Party wanted to do, which is to keep the caucus in Nevada, but the state legislatures say the, the state legislators saying that they wanted a primary. The Republican Party said, "Well, no delegates will be associated with the primary." Haley stood in the primary. Trump stood in the caucus, so he's still taking the delegates away, which again strengthens his momentum and and gives him momentum. Haley hasn't won a single state so far. Oh, South Carolina right. is up next. She was governor there for six years, but he's incredibly popular in South Carolina. A lot of Republicans, I suspect, would argue that one of the reasons for voting none of the above was more of a protest vote to, uh, to tell her, well, you know, you still Get don't out. have our support. Absolutely. Uh, there was a BBC report where somebody said, oh, I voted for Tim Scott, just to send her the same message that it's time for you to quit the race. Again, out of out of the intention of protest. Um, invariably, I suspect it would, it would affect how much how many more funds she can raise to get her campaign going but you know from looking at her campaign my question is if the glue around which people are attracted to you is the fact that you're the anti-trump candidate without being much else then if you lose that appeal then what's left of you yeah but but then it's interesting because in the republican debates mm. of everyone else yeah. except trump she did say that she will support Trump. Yes, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. When, if she's the official candidate of the Republican Party, mm. I wonder how long she will stay in, in the race. Yeah, you know, number one, this is a big hit, losing mm. to yeah. none of the above. Yeah, and then if she loses the South Carolina one, the home state yeah. one, I think she's not. She might call it quits by yeah. then. I think the writing on the wall is. I already mean, the writing is the writing it's, is on yeah. the wall for it's all already of them, there. Right? Yeah, it's I mean, we there. we've this we've talked about this with the fact that the the bipartisan bill in the Senate fell through, the one which had the the aid to Ukraine and and mm. Israel and the whole thing about the border and everything and how right. it, yeah. how right. it fell through because Trump Trump up. yeah Trump yeah. was yeah. going around calling up every single Republican Senate senator telling them you know if you do this you're gonna hand biden a victory on the mm. border and i don't want that because and he wants to make it an issue yeah in yeah. the upcoming presidential yeah. elections and, and then he when he when he and then he managed to rally the house the house republicans to come out and say that no matter what the senate sends to them they will veto it yeah immediately mm. yeah 
And I mean, the the writing on the walls, it, writing is on the wall for all these these Republican president wannabes because you know, you've got to go through your your road to the presidency goes through Trump first. Yeah, mm. it's not like in you know, in a parliamentary de- democracy where you don't ex- actually have to run as a Republican candidate, right? You could run mm. separately and and all that. The thing is, if she was an alternative candidate, maybe she might do better, but we won't know because in in the U.S. system. Yeah. Two parties. I- independents don't work. Don't no. don't survive. No, no. I mean, plus it's very difficult yeah. for yeah. you to put your name on these on, ballots. Yeah, yeah. because yeah. you have to, you know, the organization and the money costs. Yeah. Very few reform uh, third party candidates mm. in the presidential election get anything. It's very you know? difficult for an alternative candidate to 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 make themselves be heard to to succeed in this endeavor, and that's uh, that's uh function of the way the political, the electoral system in the US mm. is designed. Yeah, and it's also interesting, you know, it talks a little bit about uh, the literature by uh, Katz and Mayer, yes. uh, Richard Katz and Peter Mayer about the so-called cartel. The cartelization yeah. parties, yeah. Yep. So yep. in a yep. way, the rules actually have been jigged, re- re- rigged yep. uh, for the Republicans and for the Democrats yep. that any third party trying to take a little bit of the pie yeah. mm. is so difficult. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's really quite in, uh, a lot of institutional and structural constraints yeah. on their part. So you let's see how, what happens in the South Carolina yeah. election. But, you know, I think all of us will agree here that, you know, the writing's already yeah. on the wall. It's just that she doesn't want to read it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the, she always had a slim chance. They, they, they just keep getting slimmer by the minute. Yeah. There you go. Let's uh, turn to this Far more interesting and lighthearted uh, news. <laughs> this was picked up on, uh, it was published in uh, Associated Press and then picked up by lots of uh, mm. newspaper. The Guardian, for example, uh, South China Morning Post, Deutsche Welle, yep. in fact, was, uh, and this is the title, okay? This is the title. Flight Risk, Suspected Spy Pigeon, Released After Eight Months in Detention in India. <laughs> Neil. How do you even accuse a pigeon for spying? And who represents this pigeon How in the court? Yes. How was it identified? Yes. Well, uh, the, the Mumbai police have been so incredibly busy, haven't they? I mean, imprisoning a pigeon for eight months. You know, it's it's. this is just, this gives the word peculiar a new meaning entirely. Um, and to answer your first question, Orson, about how was it identified, all of this kicked off. In May 2023, when <laughs> police officers in a port in Mumbai noticed a pigeon, and the pigeon had rings around its legs and some lettering in Chinese characters under its wings. And somehow the conclusion was reached that this could be a possible pigeon spying for China involved in espionage. The pigeon was locked up, then transferred to um, a veterinary hospital. And he, I think the, 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 the pigeon was spent... Eight months in 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 custody in these various in these various institutions. Eventually, the Mumbai police released a statement to to I believe it was the Washington Post, no less, saying that there was a deep and proper uh, investigation and um, 
inquiry. <laughs> and no suspicious facts or evidence were unearthed, and therefore the prison is free to go. There were some people uh, online saying that the Mumbai police has finally caved into the pigeon and the avian industrial complex. Of course. Uh, <laughs> by releasing this pigeon. But it's it's not the first time that India's done this. Yeah. In, in, in 2015, they, they another pigeon was, was put behind bars because um, it had uh, a partially written messages in, uh, message in Urdu attached to it. In 2016, another pigeon was incarcerated because it contained a note uh, threatening uh, Narendra Modi, the Indian Prime Minister. <laughs> and in 2020, another pigeon was, of course, subjected to the brutal force of the law uh, for um, because the authorities in the state of Kashmir were concerned that he was uh, a, a, a spy this time from Pakistan. Um and yeah, so so India seems to have a certain level of obsession with pigeons. But my question is this: When China is busy sending spy balloons, supposedly in the US, why on earth would it resort to a pigeon as far no, as India is that, concerned? That's my question: Is what what is the uh, Indian, you know, intelligence services doing that they they conceive of a pigeon as a viable vehicle for espionage? Well. There are two ways to answer it, I think. One would be you have such a wonderful reading of history that the message that creeps out to you is the fact that pigeons were vehicles of espionage exactly. during the First World yeah. War and the Second exactly. World War. Yeah. The second would just be, you know, it's, it's. I mean, somebody has to be incredibly overjealous in the Indian intelligence agency to, to, to sort of reach the conclusion that um, a pigeon will be a source of espionage. Um, it's not like China has other options with which they can spy on in in, in India. Yeah. Um, I mean, at a time when everybody says that Indian prisons are overcrowded and the defense uh, and the justice process is strong, I do feel for the pigeon, I must say. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm just curious, you yeah. know I mean? Yeah. I mean, obviously, in a situation like that, you would need representation yes. for this when the pigeon <laughs> yes. appears in, in court. Yes, indeed. Correct? Indeed, so yeah. the only person I can think of uh, that can represent yes. the pigeon in court, and it's not even a, a real person. Yeah. It's a it's a puppet. Yeah, you know Bert and Ernie. Yes, you know yes, Sesame indeed, Street. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, actually, I was thinking of uh, Doctor Doolittle. Oh, there oh, you yes, go. Yes, Doctor yeah, Doolittle yeah, can yeah. do that too. Yeah. You know, so he speaks to animals. Yeah. That's yeah. right. That's right. right. That's, oh, what else? Do we, Ace Ventura, the yep. old yeah. Jim Carrey. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely need yeah. a pigeon whisperers. Yeah. yeah. Uh, on on a slight side note, it was later revealed that the pigeon was actually from a Taiwan. racing pigeon from Taiwan. Who, yeah. There's a lot of ra racing pigeons in Taiwan, yeah. and and when you talk about you know the Chinese characters and the automatic uh, connection to China, yeah. uh, they forget the fact that there's a lot of racing pigeons in Hong Kong as yes. well, yes. and lots of racing pigeon in. Taiwan, Taiwan, and all of them use Chinese characters yeah. uh, as well. So, I thought this was particularly interesting, yep, and I'm 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 glad that the pigeon has been released, yep, uh, unharmed. Uh, it's good to see that the Mumbai police are, you know, on their toes. Yeah, about well, uh, what what did they say? Better on their claws, you mean? Uh, on the claws, on, on their claws. claws. But better late than never. <laughs> I think, you know, better late than never. I look. I was I was thinking this is going to go to a presidential pardon. Um, but thankfully, the, the pigeon's ordeal was short-lived, and we're, we're all very <laughs> grateful for it. I mean, the average here has been a new pigeon every four years, so we'll talk about this four years from now and see what the next pigeon is going through, because, I, you know, I mean, it, it, the record speaks for itself. You've had four pigeons in 16 years. Yeah. I'm just banking on when the next one is going to come along. Yeah. <laughs>
on that note, uh, we'll end this episode of the views from down under. Uh, we are watching the Indonesian elections coming up yes. next yep. week, and yep. uh, we will be talking about that and the implications mm. to the region. Uh, uh, after the elections. Yeah. Yep. So with that, thank you again for listening to us and I uh, uh, wish you all a very happy Lunar, Lunar New Year of the Dragon and uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.